Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work. You know what you're listening to, The Work Walk, the audio guide to the workplace. A double feature today as we enter the end of the first quarter. End of the second quarter, my pardon. June 2009, two unrelated topics. One, a book by the founder of Worth Magazine, Randy Jones, entitled The Richest Man in Town, the 12, the 12 don't get that wrong, Commandments of Wealth. And unrelated to that, but because they're interesting people, a book, book about jet airliner cabins. The author, Jennifer Coots Clay, and with her, Leanne Techmeyer, who's the editor of Overhaul and Maintenance, a McGraw-Hill publication which covers the airline industry and relevant to what you sit in when you cross country or cross an ocean. Interesting topics, good people to listen to. Paul McLaughlin bringing them to you today. Listen up. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work, your audio guide to the workplace. The work wonk here. Today, speaking with W. Randall Jones. May I call you Randy? You may. Uh, who is the author of The Richest Man in Town, T-R-M-I-T, or R-M-I-T, to get The Richest Man in Town, as the book will refer to people. The Twelve Commandments of Wealth, uh, Business Plus Hachette imprint. This is the inside secrets of America's self-made millionaires, a book that has um, created a bit of a buzz around the wealthy. Uh, Randy, how did you come to write this book? Well, I was sitting in my hometown of Carrollton, Georgia, a few years back, having lunch with my 14-year-old nephew, Paul, and he looked at me and sort of sotto voce said, Uncle Randy, you see that man over there? That's the richest man in town. And it just hit me that every town has one. And yet, so often in the media, I think we view success and wealth creation through the lenses of either Wall Street and the Fortune 500 companies or Hollywood. And we forget there's this huge, vast country in between where great success is taking place, where great wealth is being created. And so I wanted to paint the most geographic and truly representative portrait of, of wealth creation in America. A little bit like the Tocqueville going across country. Exactly. In, in, in ways. Um, and w was this the first time that a book like this had been written against that kind of a profile? Well, I would think, I don't know any other book that's had this kind of sort of sociological or, or widespread approach where someone went to 100 towns in all 50 states in an attempt to paint this kind of portrait. Having said that, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon <laughs> Hill. One of my favorites. And, yes. And whenever he wrote it in the 1920s 1937 had a very similar uh, had a very similar approach and yeah. that he did sit down with a lot of very wealthy individuals to try to determine what it was about their story about their success that others of us could learn from them right so in that regard there's a similarity it's interesting you bring that up because uh, that was a book that I was unaware of and somebody brought to my attention and it, it's curious not surprising that somebody, and, and I want you to give a, a bit of your background so people don't think you came to this cold, which you right. clearly did not. Uh, but it, it was it, people who know that book are more conscious, I think, that particular book. And particularly today, because I, I read it um, within the last uh, five months, and it's remarkable how the period in which he parallels can be overlaid on today particularly to the elements of starting all over again. But I want to get to that because that's uh, part of right. our discussion here this well, morning. Well, you know, his, his great mentor in many ways was uh, W. Clement Stone, mm -hmm. the, the great uh, insurance magnate from, from Chicago who uh, I think funded a lot of Napoleon Hill's efforts and there was uh, a simpatico of, of between them in terms of their interest, in terms of what creates success. They were both eternal optimists. Mm -hmm. um, they were looking at the lives of, of Andrew Carnegie as an example and many other great Who sort of wealth creation. I think, uh, he was a supporter as well. Great, you know, great wealth creators of that, that era. Right. So in that regard, it was an inspiration uh, to me. But like you, Paul, I never read that book until I decided to do this book. 
I had heard about it, and I knew that it was a great right. um, bestseller of, of, of all time. Uh -huh. I mean, it's like the fifth best-selling book in America. Okay. Uh, so clearly, it told me that people are interested in this kind of information. Everybody wants to get ahead in life, I think. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of us mm -hmm. do anyway. And most of us, secretly, if not overtly, uh, wish to be rich, at least to be comfortable and not to have to worry so much about money and, and, and finances. So I wanted to see what was really happening you know, in modern America um, particularly in these tough economic times. That's right. I mean, you, you, you straddled. You did most of your research. Some of the people who are in your book um, have not fared as well as others in your book. That's true. But I, I don't want to get ahead of Randy Jones here for a minute. Give us your background. Why, why, why this book? What have you been doing for the last 25 years that made this particularly poignant? Well, the vast majority of my career I have spent creating magazines, writing for magazines um, that chronicle the lives of the affluent. What I was the publisher of Esquire at 29 years of age and one of the owners, sold it to the Hearst Corporation, had a nice personal windfall. Uh, with that, I founded Worth Magazine uh, in 1992, which was a magazine or is a magazine for high net worth uh, investors. Mm -hmm. And my dream there was to bring a little sex to money, a little Hollywood to Wall Street, if right. you will, and make money something that people understood and, and found fascinating as opposed to uh, sort of boring financial advice that right. was all too prevalent then. Mm -hmm. Founded uh, the American. Why that title? Why, why Worth? Yeah. I love the title because it signals. It was, yours. It was mine. Okay. Um, I am the founder of the, of the magazine. It's why, I mean, I love Worth because it signals high net worth right. on the one hand and high self-worth on the other okay so it was the great combination because I was looking at a financial lifestyle magazine one that realized that money is a means to an end that end being a richer fuller more fascinating exciting life mm -hmm. money makes that easier to get there so we've got to create the wealth we've got to manage the wealth and then ultimately we need to live well with the wealth and that was what and is what worth magazine today still is about and so out of that and, and that experience came a, a rather intimate knowledge uh, of the wealthy. And you are from a privileged background of sorts yourself. Or how would you describe your background and how were, were you, know, you I'm part of the people that you spoke about? Is that, did that gave you a comfort? I mean, you are a writer and you're a Southern writer. And there's a, Correct. certainly is a genre of, of Southern writers who are here in New York. Right. Um, and, and how did that, uh, how did that play in putting this book together? I see myself as, you know, the, the boy from Carrollton, Georgia. Mm -hmm. I certainly did not grow up poor. Um, but I'm you know, a, a small town kid who always had a fascination with a bigger world outside of the hamlet of 22,000 wonderful human beings in, in Carrollton, Georgia. So I was always fascinated by success. I always knew that I wanted a bigger life than I had growing up. And amazingly, I've had the privilege of enjoying a much, much bigger life. I am living the American dream. So to go out and speak to a hundred individuals who are living the American dream and trying to understand their journeys and then sociologically, almost anthropologically, analyzing the commonalities. To me, this was a dream job um, and one that I was uniquely qualified to do mm -hmm. because I could understand where they came from in most cases because these were all up from the bootstraps kinds of guys. And that was one of the one of the criterion that you used. Yes, they, they, they had, had to be self-made. Self they had to be self-made. My father had a little money but never gave a dime to any of his three sons because he believed, as I do today, that if you give your kids too much, you rob them of their ambition, you rob them of their self-esteem. And I found that to also be a great commonality with these richest men and women in town that I that I interviewed. So I've always had a fascination with the subject since I was a young kid. You know, when I read Esquire at 14 years of age, it was 
my window into a, a more sophisticated, more erudite world than I was growing up in. Did you travel as a child? When was, what was your first exposure to the big city, whatever that city was? 1973, Chicago, Illinois. I went to compete in a national public speaking contest, huh. and that was my first trip outside of the Southeast. And you were, and I was 15 years of age in high school. I was in high school in speech and debate. Yes, and that was a national forensic league. Well, it was what it was was the national 4-H public speaking contest. So wow. Um, I didn't know that was and one of the 4-H's. And you won. And I won. It's like the spelling bee. Congratulations. Does that <laughs> still go on today? I think it does, though I'm not totally certain. No, because I, uh, I, I wasn't aware of that, but I was interesting that that, that, that element, to, to, uh, to diverge here a little bit, interesting that you and I are talking in an interview format into a microphone and people will listen to this. Um, what what in What impact did that experience have on your writing? I mean, here you are, you're a writer, you're also a, are you a public speaker? Do you do, you do public speaking? Magazines I do. obviously were a, uh, your metier, but. Well, and it's not the only thing I've done. I mean, magazines <laughs> are, uh, are one of my great passions. Okay. Um, and I have loved magazines from the, as I said, from the time I first read Esquire at 14 years of age and bought it with my own lawn cutting money. Um, but I've also been in the independent film business. I have a small venture capital company where I invest in early stage media and technology companies that I think are on the cutting edge right. of, of, of a new wave of the way in which we will consume media. And which uh, will create wealth. Let's hope it creates profit, a little more for motive. yours truly. Yeah, sure. Well, you're not referring to me. Uh, I'm referring to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, well understood. Well, let's get back to your book for uh, for a second. Um, you and I were talking very briefly about the grant study that is uh, written up in, in the current issue of uh, Atlantic Magazine, um, and and taking Napoleon Hill. So let's take those two as juxtapositions. Is your book uh, predictive of the kinds of things you had mentioned about Napoleon Hill, if people followed this, uh, and my reading of it, which is uh, even more recent than yours, um, would have reflected, I think one of the things that he opens with is how much money do, do you need or want to earn? That sort of is not necessarily a goal because as you will state, many of your subjects, if you will, were not necessarily goal-oriented, business plan-oriented, they're executed. But, Money, money was an important element of this, but is your study predictive or is it more the fact that these people happen to have common traits which crossed with opportunity to give them the means to create what they did? Yeah, good question. I think the richest man in town is much more prescriptive than it is predictive. Uh, prescriptive in the sense that what I was attempting to do was to find the things that were common in these great wealth creators uh, that we all could embrace, find within ourselves, um, and utilize if it was our desire to become wealthy or to become more financially secure. Um, and if you believe, as I do, that these 12 commandments to wealth uh, are key to getting there, then in some ways it is also predictive. Now to the concept of happiness and the old uh, saying money can't buy happiness, mm -hmm. as I say in the book, uh, I find that not to be the case, that money does, in the case of the richest men in town anyway, buy happiness because almost to a man they are happy. Does that mean that they are content? No because they're eternal questers. They're always looking for that next opportunity, that next rung on the ladder of success. They're action addicts. They're always looking forward. Um, one of the things I found most fascinating in this process was how rare it was for the richest men or women in town to actually sit down and be somewhat reflective mm -hmm. on their journey because they were such forward thinkers. And 
the hardest part of doing this book was to lasso them to sit down for an interview. And often they'd say, Randy, you've got 30 minutes. And I would get there. Four hours later, we were still talking about their well, that's journey. that's what you told me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you picked up that. Oh, we are only an hour into this, right? Oh, Gus, we've got the, we've got the whole day, don't we, Paul? Uh, but at any rate, they would uh, find the actual process of the interview much more exciting and much more enjoyable than they thought they were going to. They thought they were just going to be giving me some some quick insight into themselves, so that I could factor it into the big puzzle, if you will. Instead it was almost like they were sitting down with uh, their own shrink. And they were enjoying the fact that they were realizing, hey, I really have had an extraordinary life. Now, keep in mind, it was not as though, for any of these guys, it was a constant upward trajectory. If you were to graph the lives of the richest men in town and richest women in town, the graph would look like an electrocardiogram up and down and one of the greatest common traits is their amazing sort of resilience and the ability to bounce back from the inevitable failure that they all with the exception of two uh were very quick to point out that they experienced and and each and i think that that also reflects as we would uh refer back to napoleon hill's book um, and to the grant study of the Harvard class, that there was there was a passion and a persistence. They would all, they all had to meet those obstacles and bull through them. They did indeed. And the reason they met those obstacles and those failures or temporary setbacks and pull through them, as you say, is because what they were doing was and is, in the case of the richest men in town, their perfect pitch. Now, the thing the that they pitch. are most uniquely gifted to do. And what I mean by that is, so often in America, you know, we say to our kids, and you were probably told by your parents, Paul, you can be anything you want to be, anything you dream I of being. I saw this in the book. This uh, leapt out at me. Right. And... The richest men in town don't buy that. They don't believe. They believe that's a big lie, that you can't be anything you want to be, but you can be so much more of what you instinctively, innately, genetically are. In other words, we have the greatest chance of success at something that is almost genetically part of our, our code. So if you can find the thing that you do so well, that as Maya Angelou says, uh, allows the world to not take their eyes off of you, then you're going, to, you're, you're going to work harder. You're going to enjoy the work along the process. You're going to come out of those inevitable failures um, and learn something from it, and you're going to keep m marching forward. So finding your perfect pitch is critical. In other words, it's the power of relative skill differences. While we may all be in a country where we're created equal, um, we're not equal in terms of our talents and skills. Jonathan Nelson, the richest man in Providence, Rhode Island, pointed this out to me. Um, and he's a big private equity guy. He's done the biggest private equity deals in history, bigger than Henry Kravis. And he said that he realized this when he was a freshman at Brown University, and he took a Beethoven course. And on the first day, the professor hit a note on the piano and said, what key is that? And 25% of the hands in the classroom were raised. And he said, how do they know that? And the attractive young woman in front of him said, I have perfect pitch. And, and he realized then that no matter how hard he studied, no matter how hard he tried, that was a gift that they had that he could not acquire. You cannot learn perfect pitch. You either have it or you don't. So finding those things within you that are your perfect pitch is, I think, the single greatest and most important aspect of, of becoming rich Interesting. and happy. And, and happy. We're going to get to happiness in, in a second here because I think that the, the particularly the grant study, uh, and, I, and I should say before we go on, I get, get so, so sometimes caught up with people like Randy Jones that I, you're just a voice at the end of the microphone, so I'm going to say that I'm speaking with Randy Jones. 
W. Randall, Randall Jones, who is the author of The Richest Man in Town. It's Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, The Work Wonk, your audio guide to the workplace. In this case, discussing the 12 commandments of wealth, as he has penned it, the inside secrets of America's self-made millionaires, and along the lines of those, not to forget our good sponsors, the people at Classroom 24-7, who bring you web-based solutions to the learning uh, web learning, uh, particularly those who need certification over the web, good way to look at it, and we encourage you to um, give them a click on the bottom of the screen as you will see it if you're able to. If not, classroom24-7, be in touch with them. Uh, Randy Jones, we're talking a little bit about, about happiness and wealth. Um, did you, uh, I, I think, uh, in, in getting the tone of the book, that you weren't exactly sure whether you would admire these people, whether you would like these people, whether there would be a personal attachment, clearly by spending more time with them and hearing their stories as personal stories as opposed to financial biographies, they became real people. Um, were they, uh, were they likable people? Almost to a man or woman. In and, fact, and, and it of, was the of these, how many were men and how many were women? 96 men, four women. Okay doesn't exactly prove that women have broken the glass ceiling of great outsized wealth creation, but, but it's a start. But when, what, what age was not the average? What's the range? Give a, a sense. You're talking about the, the youngest uh, when I interviewed him was Karthik Bala at 28 years old, the richest man in Albany, New York. Uh, and the oldest would have been Kirk Kikorian at, at 90, the richest man in Los Angeles, California. Stick with those two for a minute. Did they have different perspectives? Uh, very much so. Karthik is um, the product of immigrant parents. Um, he is very much of the technology age. He loved video gaming better than anything and actually ended up creating Nintendo's Guitar Hero and Tony Hawk's Downhill Jam, as an example. So that's a very different... How of you to be able to spit those out <laughs> so readily. Congratulations. Well, th thanks to this project. I, I, <laughs> and also having three sons. Absolutely. So, um, so you have, you know, Karthik on one end of the spectrum, and then you have Kirk Kikorian, who had been a king of Las Vegas, a major real estate developer, a corporate activist, the West Coast version of Carl Icahn. Mm -hmm. Um, the guy who strikes fear in the hearts of CEOs when they see that he's buying up their, their stock because they know that he's about to make some changes or try to institute some changes. So, yeah, they were very, very different uh, people. Having said that, there were also several commonalities. And they were like, were they both likable in a different way? Yes. I mean, so yes. you're sort of in the middle of them age-wise and experience-wise, that's, that's true. And you straddle both worlds. Right. And so you were an observer of it. I, I liked them both immensely. And what I will say, the first time I met Kirk Kikorian was at a dinner party at one of his former lover's houses in uh, California, uh, the actress Yvette Mimure. And I thought, this is a guy that doesn't know how to let his hair down. Um, but the more I got to know him and the more, I, more time I spent with him, I found him to be, you know, an utterly charming man. And at 90, you have a unique perspective on, on life and on business. And I guess what I admired the most is that he was continuing to look to the future every day. There was, there was no sense of, of retirement. That, that word could never enter his vocabulary. And the reason for his longevity, perhaps, uh, is not his money. Uh, it might be his happiness, but his absolute drive and desire to continue to do that next deal, to make the next rung of, on the ladder of success. Interesting that you say that because it seems that part of maybe a, a, a spin on that, and this in the form of a question to Randy Jones, um, their connectivity to the outside world seems to be a lot of emotional and, and intellectual health pointed out in the grant study, also pointed out by, um, by Napoleon Hill, are relationships. And people who are in, in boardrooms, they, 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 
were there were there many who were really austere, removed folks, uh, particularly in their older age, uh, or was that that touch and feel of the out to the community part of what they thrived on? I didn't interview a single person that I thought had suddenly become the hermit behind the gilded gates. Uh-huh. Not at all. These were all very engaged people. That's why they're the richest man in town. They, they love doing what they do. They can't imagine not doing it. It's why one of the 12 commandments to wealth is don't retire or never retire. Retirement is anathema to these kinds of people because they've been defined by what they do their whole life to suddenly move to some sunny village in the South and do nothing but but play golf or canasta, that would be the richest man in town's idea of hell. Granted. Um, when you met these people, introduced yourself to them, you were, they knew that you were going to profile them? They did. Um, I, the process was like this, and everyone's curious about that. How did you get these guys? Well, you know, I was uh, the founder of Worth Magazine, right. a, a magazine that many of them read. Right. I had written a book in, in 2004 called The Greatest Stock Picks of All Time. Mm-hmm. So that uh, appealed to their, their business sensibilities. They saw that it was a good book, well-written, and, um, and I think they understood my plea to try to share their wisdom with a younger generation of people and you found them too right yes <laughs> you were calling and, and i and i and i, and I, I called them yes that's part of the execution process but that was uh, that was not easy because <laughs> it required them to put one more thing on their uh, to-do list that right. day and these guys are nothing if not busy and as i said earlier action addicts so to get them to take action with me was not an easy thing but once they did um, I think they, they very much enjoyed the process, and I think it made them feel good to know that their legacy, to some degree, is being preserved and shared with future generations. I know this is, is jumping around a little bit, but I'm, in my mind, I want to jam in a couple of thoughts. One is, did you ask them if they would have, what, if anything, they would have changed? I asked the question, do you have any regrets? I didn't ask... What would you have changed? And almost to a person, they said, now if you had asked me at the time of a major crisis, I could have probably given you some regrets. But now in retrospect, as they were looking back over their careers, I heard no regrets, no regrets, no regrets, time and time again. Because I think while they probably would have done things slightly differently, they did mention they probably would have spent more time with their kids right because to create this kind of wealth something has to give and often it is the family and I'm convinced that that's part of the reason they have on in most cases such enduring marriages because and and rather traditional marriages because it allowed the woman uh, or the wife to stay home and and take care of the children so that they could do what they did best, which was build companies and make money. Well, and particularly for the, those who are older, that was a more, uh, a more common um, path for the men to take. Yeah, and several of the younger ones said that they were putting off relationships uh, until they felt as though they were, um, they were at a level where they felt comfortable that they had made it. Um, so clearly the relationship aspect is, is something that could suffer, um, and, and there might have been some, some regret about that. But by and large, you know, these guys were pretty happy with where they had been and, and were even more eager to figure out where they were going next. Did they, was, clearly there is a healthy sense of ego, but let me not put words in your mouth. How did they express how much of this was them versus how much of this was good fortune or timing or opportunity what what did you find the blend of that what was the ego well the ego was clearly developed 
you have to have a, a highly <laughs> developed ego yeah. to and want to own thing. your company. Right. You know, they all wanted to run their own company. Jim Olschlager, the richest man in Akron, Ohio, and one of the most inspiring men I, I met uh, along the journey. He has MS and he cannot walk. And yet he calls himself the benevolent dictator of Oak Associates, a $30 billion uh, money management company headquartered in Akron. And he is so loved by his employees, but yet he is firmly in charge. So the ego is strong, but strong, I think, in a, in a good way. Strong in the sense that it allows them to make the decisions that need to be made rather decisively. It allows them to continue to, to take responsible risk when they need to, to grow their companies. So it, it takes someone that feels pretty confident of their skill set and pretty confident that they are practicing their perfect pitch in order to create the kind of wealth that, that they have and enjoy the kind of success that they, they have. Um, I said earlier, they're happy, not necessarily satisfied or content. And I think uh, that's a, a big difference for them. They're happy overall in their lives, but, but what makes them happy is that they're not content, that they're continuing to, to move forward in some shape, form, or fashion. Was there any um, sense uh, across the, the spectrum of these individuals that their what they were doing died with them or were they were they building a legacy that was built on family or that they had created something how was their time on earth as successful as they are and having built personal wealth which meant they had built a commercial enterprise after they were gone how did they reflect on the importance of that living well i asked the uh epitaph question okay. of them all. Thank you. You shortened it up for me. Um, and Phil Ruffin, the richest man in uh, Wichita, said to me, um, I want my tombstone to say, this is his last real estate deal. You know, and I think that's indicative of all of them. They, they want to leave a, a strong legacy, in some cases, for their, for their family, because they are family-controlled companies. But I think they all recognize that what they've created is much, much larger than themselves. Now, while they think, and are rightfully, and, and rightfully so should think, that they were the driving force, they know that they couldn't have gotten there alone. They know that they had great help along the way. They know they had a tremendous amount of luck and good fortune uh, did shine upon them. So I don't think that they are looking at the question of legacy and saying, I did, you know, I, I did it wrong. Uh, I think they're basically saying, I sort of did it right, and I'm pretty happy. If, if the proverbial Mack truck hits me tomorrow, I, I, I will have known that I, I did some good. Because you got to keep in mind that the collective wealth of these 100 people is $355 billion. And yet they've given away 50% of that as a group. So they've been generous in spirit. They've changed the very landscape of their towns in almost every case. So how could they not feel good about their legacy? And some of them actually built towns. Yes. <laughs> Yes, whole towns to create. John McAfee in Rodeo, uh, New Mexico, is is building a town. Absolutely. Um, two questions: one, the importance of being an American, and what America meant to them. I noticed a number of them were immigrants, yes, um, or either first or second generation, and that sort of sense of urgency of starting with nothing. And then uh, I'd like to close um, with the impact of the last year. Uh, in the in the economic, a lot of uh, one of the quotes I noticed from Warren Buffett was that there are two L's that um, are the biggest uh, problems. One is liquor, and one is leverage. I yes. think if I had it right, of course he has fallen on that leverage sort of bit himself in the last uh, in the last four or five months. But yes, back to the issue of America, how important was it to these people? Oh, 
these richest men and women in town or incredible lovers of American democracy. They are flag-waving patriots. Uh, I think of Crystal DeHaan, the richest woman in Indianapolis, a German immigrant who married an American soldier, came to Indianapolis, took in typing into her home in order to feed her family. And 12 years later, from the time she arrived, she was the chairman and CEO of a billion-dollar multinational company that she and her husband started and that she ran. I mean, that is the American dream. So they all are living the American dream, and they appreciate it in a big way. And they know they couldn't have done that in any other country in the world, most likely. Almost irrespective of the then-present administration. Exactly. So the, the winds of politics were one thing. Business was another. Business was another. As, as an aside, I, I, I read in the New York Times today, so we can date this conversation by the obituary of the last survivor of the Titanic, who was taken off uh, as a uh, two-month, I believe, or two-year-old child. I think it was two months old. And, yes. and it was interesting yeah. to note that, that the— The uh, progeny of John Jacob Astor, right? Uh, no, 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 no. This is a person in steering. This is the last sur actual oh. survivor of the Titanic itself. And she was a woman of, uh, her father, um, the family was, uh, in which her father perished. They were in steerage. They were third class. And uh, the mother and the two children were taken off. And um, they stayed for, he was coming over because his, his uh, cousin had a small tobacco shop in Kansas City, and he was coming over to run that. He died in, in he went down with the Titanic. They stayed in New York for a week and then returned. Now, the, the, the causes of fortune, and some of the people that you spoke about, had they, had they left shortly or not seen the opportunity or not been given the opportunity. So those kinds of things uh, feed in. Um, but that there's, certain, there's, a certain, there's a certain eye, it would appear, even in, in not even, but in Napoleon Hill's book, uh, as opposed to some extent to the Harvard study of people who are of privilege and, and were going to a school that their parents uh, obviously encouraged them to go to, that for some of these people, there's an urgency, there's looking at America with a new eyes and maybe seeing opportunity that is different from the opportunity than, say, your children and my children will see because they're already here. Was that something that's saying uh, through? Uh, yeah, you definitely saw that. And in fact, most of these richest men in town see that as a gift. And that's why they worry about the fact that their kids are growing up with so much more privilege than, than they grew up with. And um, it's why the vast majority of them are not giving their kids any significant inheritance because they don't want to rob their kids of that desire, that ambition. Um, and I heard time and time again, if you give your children too much, then you rob them of their ambition and you rob them of their self-esteem. And one of the reasons they are so happy is because they made it themselves. Their self-esteem is high because they can point to their own efforts and say, I was a big part of making this happen. They want that same gift for their children. Interesting you say that. I heard, um, so this is not out of school. It was printed, I, I believe, in the Times, an interview with uh, John McEnroe, and he was concerned what he termed it as affluenza uh, for his children, that the, that the passion associated with, that he had, obviously, in a sport that he carved, etched his own niche in, his own name in that that passion, that, that push, that drive uh, will, uh, would have an impact. And one could, um, one could say that the financial meltdown and the, the, um, the uh, dislocation of wealth towards Wall Street uh, and, the, and the manufacture of it, that people who made it in, in trading, I mean, I know a lot of people were in bankers, but they, they built banks that, that did different things but that uh, a lot of this, uh, the capital flows around the world and the people who made great wealth off a screen, off a of Bloomberg, True. Um, did not necessarily have a passion for it. It was a means to make money. And now 
that business may be curtailed or changed in a way that we wouldn't see. With that, again, and maybe that wealth for places like New York and the financial services industry will change. Um, but give us, the, give us uh, Randy Jones, the um, benefit of your years in Worth Worth magazine and studying the wealthy. Be predictive. What, what, what is America really going to change as a result of 2008? And how? Not dramatically. We are changing right now because we're forced to. Uh, our 401ks have become 201ks. Even the richest men in town have seen their their net worths fall significantly. It's been sort of equal opportunity pain. Um, but once we get through this, Paul. I think Americans will revert to many of the same habits uh, that we've had all along. The great American pastime is shopping. We're not shopping right now, but we will be when, uh, when the markets bounce back and when we're in a, a bit better economic period. So fundamentally, I don't think we're going to change. Uh, having said that, change is really the only, only constant in, in life. So, of course, we're going to change, and technology is moving that change in rapid-fire pace. But I think all of that is good, and I think what you're going to see is, just like with these richest men in town, uh, Americans continue to, to look forward much more than they, than they look back. Um, we're much better futurist than we are historians. Interesting. An uh, interesting thought, and not, not, to be, um, not to be counter, but to get your Im impression. In the car industry, one of the statistics that I saw over the weekend was that the, um, there has been a new car drop, a purchase of new car drop that's been quite dramatic. And this is like 46%. I think it's dropped under 10 yes. million new units, and it had hit I don't know, 15, 16, 17 million, something along those lines. And the thought was maybe conspicuous consumption can be defined in a variety of ways, but maybe the idea that transportation and a new car was, might take a real fundamental change in, in America. Um, and, of course, we're putting a lot of money into uh, perhaps not having that be true. Blend that with a, um, the whole notion, however one defines it, as sustainability. Sustainability does have, to some extent, a, uh, a notion that conspicuous construction is not consistent with sustainability. Right. Give us your. I think there's a time. big difference between a consumerist economy and conspicuous consumption. Uh, I don't think you're going to see the kinds of bling, the kinds of um, you know, gas-guzzling cars that you once did because the younger generation is not as interested in that. So I think, you know, there is a change there. And I think one of the reasons General Motors filed for bankruptcy today is that they didn't uh, have their finger on the pulse of consumer society and they weren't creating enough really great cars uh, for, for the future. So th there will be companies like General Motors that simply have to change or else they will perish and i think that's what the capitalist society is is all about and i think that's that's okay do you hate to see a, a company that used to be part of the the motto what's good for general motors is good for america um no but it's indicative of the fact that things are changing and that companies must do a much better job of of creating products and services that meet the needs of of a changing uh, consumer. But in terms of whether we're going to continue to spend, whether we're going to continue to want to grab the brass ring of the American dream, whether we're going to continue to want to have uh, a better life for ourselves and our children, no, those things will not change. And lastly, reflecting on that comment, the people that you spoke to, they um, either were young and had already achieved a certain uh, affluence based on what they had created, or the people who were older had been doing it for a long time. The passion that gives rise to great wealth, uh, much like 
the science that ultimately becomes the Nobel Prizes are usually achieved or the course set or the seed sown relatively young in life. True? True. I say to the 1.5 million college graduates that are graduating from college this year amid the worst job economy maybe in two decades that your risk is lowest at your youngest age. So why not take the risk then? If you can't find a job with a Fortune 500 company right now, which you probably can't, why not sit back, try to figure out what your perfect pitch is, and start your own business now while the, while the risk level is l the lowest it will ever be in your lifetime? Having said that, it's never too late. Bernie Marcus, the richest man in Atlanta and the founder of Home Depot, was fired at 49 years of age. Best and started, thing that ever happened to him. <laughs> and best thing that ever happened to yeah. him. Founded Home Depot, and you know the rest of the story. Yeah. Well, on a day when Citigroup and GM were delisted from the Dow, and something <laughs> else comes in, it's a pleasure to be speaking to you about these uh, plate shifts that are happening in the, in the American economy. Um, lastly, The Richest Man in Town as a book, The Twelve Commandments of Wealth. Um, is there a, is there somebody who buys the book trying to come away with something? What is the predictor of what they would, the one element overarching that they will come away from this stunning book by Randy Jones, who's the founder of Worth Magazine and the author of Richest Man in Town, The Inside Secrets of America's Self-Made Millionaires. Is that a picture of a Bugatti on the on the on the? No, bow? that's the Monopoly car. <laughs> <laughs> Which may be from a Bugatti, but it's the Monopoly exactly. car. Exactly. What, what, what's the reader going to take away from this book? They're going to come away knowing that the American dream is alive and well. They're going to come away knowing that it can be done. They're going to come away knowing that wealth can still be created uh, in this country and great wealth. Uh, and they're going to see 12 commandments to help guide them to do so. And they're going to read 100 stories of 100 individuals who have done it. And that's a pretty powerful package, if I do say so myself. All this in the book. Randy Jones, the author, The Richest Man in Town, The 12 Commandments of Wealth. Imprint is Business Plus from Hachette. Randy, thanks for joining me today. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work, the work wonk, and your audio guide to the workplace. An interesting take on where we were and where we're going. Thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Randy Jones, interesting guy, well presented. And shifting gears, Paul McLaughlin, back with you to bring on the ladies. Discussion of Jet Airliner Cabins with Jennifer Coots Clay, the author of it. And Leanne Techmeyer, who is the editor of Overhaul and Maintenance O&M, repeatedly put in the wrong order by yours truly, for which I apologize. She'll set the record straight. And here we go. Listen up. Good stuff in the air. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work. Looking forward to a delightful conversation uh, today. First in the studio is Je Jennifer Coots Clay, who is an aviation expert a consultant and, and author of a specialized and well-considered book on the subject of aircraft interiors, although I'm not sure I'm doing that justice, and that's civilian, um, civilian aircraft, civil aircraft, as opposed to military. And that book, uh, entitled Jetliner Cabins, published by John Wiley and Sons in uh, an original form in, in 2003, and then updated in a second edition, an enhanced edition, uh, published in 2006. Way we're going to hear about how those cabins are thought, how they are overhauled, how they are changed for branding and other purposes. And in this particular e economy, uh, the overhaul may be of greater value than new aircraft coming on board. Second person on uh, on McLaughlin at work today on the phone is Leanne Tetmeyer, who is the managing editor of Maintenance and Overhaul. That's a McGraw Hill publication within the family of. Aviation Week. Uh, Leanne Tetmeyer, uh, if you would, give us a, a sense of what MRO is, what role that McGraw-Hill ha McGraw has in that conference, and, and use that as a liftoff point to um, 
give us a, a sense of the, the state of the industry, how the airlines are thinking about themselves here in 2009. Leanne. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The maintenance, repair, and overhaul market, it's basically maintenance and engineering of commercial aircraft. Um, there are conference, the MRO Americas had a military component, but for this discussion, we'll limit it to commercial aircraft. And just so your listeners know, it, the market is about a $45.7 billion annual market. And the MRO Americas conference that we held last week in Dallas was attended by nearly 6,000 people from about 500 companies. Aviation Week and Space Technology is the Aviation Week group's flagship publication. Uh, Jennifer Coots Clay, the book Jetliner Cabins, uh, put that in perspective for us. So, how did it all come about? And you can bring us down to Dallas in the conference and your role there after you give us a sense of your own background and the book. Thank you for the invitation, Paul. And uh, I do hope that your listeners are going to be interested in this conversation because there are about two and a quarter billion passengers on the scheduled airlines worldwide uh, every year, and they sit in the cabins. When you go to the MRO conference, which is wonderful, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about engines and winglets and fuel efficiency. And I do say to my colleagues, well, the passengers don't sit in the cargo bay. They don't sit in the overhead stowage bins. They're in the cabin. And so we um, have had uh, sessions on the interior, the aircraft interior, and the uh, parts of the cabin that impact the passengers, mainly seats, uh, baggage stowage, carpets, curtains, galleys, lavatories, doorways, locks, door handles, latch assemblies, safety belts, um, flotation devices, signage inside the cabin, and that's for starters. Then we get going with the details. And part of that is uh, part of that is the technology, which everybody much is thinking about. Internet coming on uh, in some particular flights, but th that's a re those are new the new developments. Yes, you've touched on um, what they call IFE in-flight entertainment. Uh, tell us, uh, give us your credentials, your bona fides for, for, for writing Jetliner Cabins. <laughs> why should I write Jetliner Cabins? <laughs> no, why did you? Why do that? <laughs> well, I've had more than 30 years in the business, and I spent 16 years with British Airways, my alma mater, really, in this business. And uh, I was with uh, Pan Am as general manager, product design and development. And as a shrimp... I, I think I've heard of Pan Am, but there are some people perhaps who, for whom it is merely a, a, an old legacy airline. Mm, well, it was one of the great world uh, airlines. British Airways, everybody knows about. They're everywhere. And uh, the sun never sets on British Airways. When I was a shrimp at British Airways, I used to say to the boss of engineering, well, where can I read about these things? when I was learning about dress seat covers and seat foam densities and arm caps and bump strips and bin strips and all these other things. And they used to say to me, the only way to learn this business is to do it. You have to crawl on hands and knees around the hangars and across the cabin floorboards. And that's the only way to learn. And it was a complete transfer um, from uh, government ownership to investor ownership and we had to maintain pride of heritage but we had to have a discontinuity because now we were becoming a competitive uh, investor owned entity which was completely different from the old nationalized transportation system. Uh, how does one go about uh, the redesign of an international aircraft? People in Britain obviously wanted British Airways to look British. However, a great um, proportion of the revenue came from outside Britain. So <laughs> we obviously had to work uh, to accommodate um, these wider fields of influence. And with British Airways, uh, you also have to think about the history, uh, linking the uh, Commonwealth routes, the trade routes of the old British Empire, 
and competing against the world's best on all the key routes, routes like London, New York, uh, London, Singapore, down to Australia. So um, the colours of the national flag were kept. Um, they were adju uh, adjusted slightly to be a bit more um, customer friendly. Uh, if you look at the Union Jack and the French Tricolore and the United States national flags, they all use red and white and blue. And in fact, those colours are very, very close to each other. Um, they're very sharp colours because uh, flags are normally designed to be seen out in the open air and there might be rain, there might be clouds, so they're sharp reds, sharp blues. Inside the cabin, we softened the blues and uh, on the exterior of the aircraft, the red was softened um, slightly to look a bit more welcoming. Um, the lettering is very important. Uh, some airlines use big letters. Um, that is the trend these days. If you look at the old pictures, the name of the aircraft appeared in small letters on the side of the aircraft. Nowadays, most airlines show the name in big letters. Some, sometimes they're so large <laughs> that they seem to bleed off the tail or the like. You're right. And it was Pan Am that pioneered that with the Airbus A310-300. They called it the billboard lettering. And it stretched almost from the top to um, near the lower edge of the side of the fuselage. And everyone said, oh, well, that's, that's because they're flying a new Airbus aircraft type, and Pan Am is the great corporate identity worldwide. But, you know, look at those huge letters. Well, what happened after the um, late 1980s, we saw more and more airlines using larger letters, um, which makes sense, because at an airport, and when the aircraft is flying in and out, you can see the name from a distance. Give the, the, uh, the, the good folks listening to McLaughlin at work a sense of what is entailed uh, in, making, uh, in making that shift. And then I'm gonna ask Leanne to address how you report on those shifts when the, the general knowledge, uh, when the, the public seems to um, react poorly. Well, you asked about United, and if you remember, back in the uh, 70s um, and early 80s, United had this wonderful orangey-colored tulip and uh, the white fuselage, and it looked really lively and vivid and energetic. Um, after British Airways brought in the new scheme with the pale gray, a silvery gray, instead of designer bright white um, and uh, deep blue, we found that uh, a number of other airlines started to move in that direction. Our scheme became a kind of new benchmark. It looked executive, uh, more of an executive um, combination. It looked more business-like, whereas earlier um, the airline had looked uh, a bit more lively, like a, a leisure carrier. So what we saw in the late 80s, United moved across to a grey scheme. Some people called it the stealth bomber scheme because it was a darker grey than British Airways right. had used. Right. And again, it was very serious looking, very businesslike. Um, and then, of course, an airline redefines itself. A new uh, chairman might arrive or chief executive. Market conditions might change. They might find they have more competitors on their major routes. And so they make changes. And Leanne, can I ask you whether um, your publication takes on uh, as an editorial how the paint looks? Generally, no. We have reported on United's old darker gray scheme, which Jennifer had mentioned. There were some, I think, safety considerations with that dark, darker paint scheme. Our readers are more interested in knowing about Wi-Fi installations and upgrades, lie-flat seats, you know, carpeting, and um, from the paint standpoint, there are some greening issues that are occurring in paint. They are containing less volatile organic compounds, and they're using less paint, so the thickness of the paint is actually much less than what it was even a decade ago. So not only do you have greener paint, but there's less of it. And so those are the kind of technologies that we're more interested in. We can expect to see aircraft windows 
um, where there are options for a lot of light, no light, or any grade in between at the push of a button. Um, there are so many things now that we just didn't even dream of five or ten years ago. If I could dovetail on this, another interesting thing that is coming with the next generation aircraft is a change of lights from overhead lighting to the lighting on the floor. Um, you can have colors and it'll be a much more passenger friendly lighting and it also it doesn't emit as much heat. So there is an energy efficiency in that respect too. Is there, as, as these uh, uh, interiors um, uh, evolve, what role does the FAA or other international um, uh, guiding agencies have on regard to safety and, and making them uniform? Is that something where the uh, aircraft manufacturers and, and overhaul folks have to go through a fairly extensive review before you can change from a white light to a... Uh, to the uh, bubble gum? There are a lot of different factors. For instance, the seats have to be able to withstand at least a 16G force, which is pretty enormous. And as far as fabric goes, there are certain uh, flame test requirements. So many, many, many parts of the interior do have regulatory standards. standards. And the European Aviation Safety Agency and other regulatory bodies around the world are, are, a lot of them have coordinated standards on the interiors, but these are definitely very regulated aspects of the interior. And that brings our episode to a close. My thanks to Leanne Techmeyer and Jennifer Coots Clay, and of course, Randy Jones, the richest man in town. Odd mix, but good listening. Thanks for joining me. You make it all worthwhile, and look forward to having you join me again next week for another series of episodes with me, Paul McLaughlin, The Work Walk, your audio guide to the workplace. Later.